Hi, I'm Andy English. This is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. Episode 7 Disaster at Vimy Ridge The beginning of 1917 was very different from the year before. Gone was the optimism that one big push would see the end of the war. The frightful casualties in the Somme and the lack of any breakthrough had brought home the realisation that this was a war of attrition and not likely to end soon. The Headley Patriotic Fund was still sending out Christmas hampers and they were still getting to the men. William Tucker wrote from the front. Christmas letter from Sergeant Major Tucker of the Machine Gun Brigade. Would you please convey my sincere thanks to the people of Headley and the Nickel Plate Mine for the various gifts I have received during the past few days. Parcels arrived in excellent order, quite unexpected, but nevertheless very acceptable. I am debted also to the committee for such admirable work accomplished in this respect. It must have taken much of their time and consideration. Regarding the cheque for £1, my intentions are to keep it as a souvenir from Headley. Please give my kindest regards to all inquiring friends, thanking them one and all and wishing you a happy new year. And it wasn't just the Headley men on the front lines who received their Christmas hampers. The Headley Patriotic Fund, chaired by GP Jones, did extraordinary work throughout the war, ensuring that the Headley packages found their way to the men wherever they were. Thomas Calvert, who was still at headquarters staff in England, was moving around a lot, but even his hamper found its way to him. Headley Gazette January 18th, 1917. The following letter was received this week by C.P. Dalton, Secretary of the Local Patriotic Fund from Thomas Calvert, formerly of Headley. Dear Sir, I beg to acknowledge the receipt of your letter with draft for £1 enclosed, for which I feel deeply grateful to the people of Headley and the Nickel Plate Mine. Kindly convey my very sincere thanks to all the people who so generously contributed to the handsome presents you lavished upon us this Christmas. I was informed that there were two parcels at Folkestone for me from Leon. I could not think who sent them from Leon, so informed them to keep the parcels until I came down, as I was to spend my Christmas here in Folkestone. I was surprised but very pleased upon opening them and discovering the senders. They were two very well-packed parcels with lots of good things to eat, and I am sure all the Headley boys feel mighty proud we came from Headley, and appreciate your great generosity. As I spent my Christmas in England... I knew of two boys at the front less fortunate than I, so I've had my passport forwarded on to them, knowing you would not mind my doing so. Christmas this year in England was not gay, and I have no doubt it was the same elsewhere throughout the British Empire. There are so many who have lost dear ones at the front, but are still willing to make more sacrifices to obtain an honourable peace for us. I wish you all a very happy and prosperous New Year. Next Christmas I feel confident that we shall all be back among you. This horrible war will not last more than nine months longer. Germany is now in a much worse plight than we know, and yet we know that there are thousands starving. My chief regret is that the people of Great Britain did not make David Lowe or George Premier two years ago. What a lot of suffering and lives it would have saved. Not much of your wait and see about Davy. Yours sincerely, Thomas Calvert. Sadly, Thomas Calvert was wrong. The war would not be over by the year's end. The cost of the war was by now enormous. 
More of everything was required to keep the millions of men now in the British Army clothed, fed and supplied. Money was always needed, and so taxes on many items were introduced, some as temporary measures. War loans were advertised, and most dances and events saw money being raised for patriotic purposes. There were appeals to the farmers and ranchers of Canada to provide more of every produce from beans and wheat to flax and horses. The Smilkameen provided a lot of horses throughout the war for the military. The townsfolk of Headley were also being asked to give, and then give some more. Every month the Headley Patriotic Fund took its subscription from all the employers of the mine and the people of the town. In 1916 the fund raised a total of $9,000, which amounted to $30 per person. In today's money, in 2020, these amounts would be nearly $200,000, raised in a year by 300 people paying over $660 a year. And this was on top of the extra taxes and voluntary contributions at fundraisers such as the Masquerade Ball. Despite now paying $4.25 a day, the mine was struggling to find workers. Such had been the number of men enlisting. And there were to be two more issues that also were contributing to the scarcity of local labour. There had long been talk of conscription being introduced. The number of volunteers to the army had tailed off in 1916, and now it was feared there would not be enough men to replace all the casualties already suffered. To preempt this, there had been, as a gazette referred to it, a great exodus from the mine and mill of men who headed south over the border to work in the still neutral United States. The Headley Gazette called these men out as slackers and hoped they would get called up for military service when the US finally entered the war. There had been several scathing articles published in the Gazette about President Wilson still retaining his stance of neutrality, despite all of the German atrocities, such as the execution of Nurse Edith Cavell and the sinking of the Lusitania. On April the 6th, the United States declared war on Germany, in part due to their recent resumption of their unrestricted submarine campaign. This had seen several American ships sunk with considerable loss of life. The former Gazette editor, A. McGraw, wrote to the Gazette to tell them that Austin Hoy, the American mining equipment salesman, who had designed the Headley Golf Course back in 1905, had lost his mother and sister on one of these ships sunk. He had sent an angry cable to President Wilson that had garnered much attention and was thought to have had some effect. Well, whether the cable had an effect on the US entry into the war... Their entry certainly had an effect on Headley, because much like in 1914, a number of these men were on the military reserve, and very soon Headley was witnessing yet more groups of men leaving to go and serve their country overseas. The 54th in France were resting and receiving reinforcements to replace the men they had lost on the Somme. But these new men were not all big tough Westerners like the battalion had been made of. Recruits from British Columbia were now being drafted into other battalions, like the 29th and 102nd, as well as the 54th. Indeed, this was to be the last draft that included any more Headley men. From then on, they got what Major Lucas dismissively referred to as farm boys from Ontario. Indeed, the battalion was to receive so many recruits from East that it was eventually renamed the Central Ontario Battalion. There were still a number of Headley boys, though, fruit, and they were now the experienced veterans, as reflected by the promotions as the battalion took on the new recruits. Arthur Martin became a corporal, Thomas Knowles went from corporal to sergeant, and Alec Jack became the company sergeant major. Through November and December, men wounded at Eaps and the Somme returned. Major Lucas resumed command of C Company and Bobby Robertson rejoined Joe Rotherham, Bill Fulmer, William Burroughs and the other Headley men still in the 54th. 
The first six weeks of 1917 were bitterly cold, and the ground was frozen solid. But that didn't mean the men of the Canadian Corps, as it was now known, were idle. Indeed, preparations were underway for an assault on Vimy Ridge as part of the larger Arisk offensive. Vimy Ridge rose out of the flat plains all around and had been held by the Germans since 1914. They had heavily fortified it since, and 100,000 Frenchmen had died trying to recapture it, and it was now considered impossible to take with a frontal assault. And yet, that is what the Canadians had now been tasked to do. The preparations were immense. Tunnels to hide and move the troops were dug at night some right up to the German front lines. Mine chambers were dug out and filled with explosives ready to be set off at the right time. Artillery was zeroed in on the German guns and troops trained to advance under cover of a creeping barrage. This was a new innovation that required a lot of coordination between artillery and infantry. The infantry moved forward while keeping close to the artillery barrage which was meant to move forward at a walking pace, the idea being to catch the enemy still in their dugout sheltering. The 54th trained in this potentially dangerous manoeuvre. Advance too fast and get hit by your own shells. Too slow and you give the enemy time to man their defences. The attack was due to be launched in April. But in late February, the 54th received orders that along with the 75th and 102nd battalions, they were to take part in a large-scale trench raid aimed at destroying some of the enemy defences. An ambitious raid on the high ground across from the 54th, known as Hill 145, to take prisoners, destroy bunkers and generally disrupt their defensive by using a new type of gas, White Star, a mixture of chlorine and phosgene, had originally been planned back in January, but had been cancelled. Now it was on again. Over a thousand gas cylinders had already been positioned and covered up, and now they just needed the wind to behave for them. The use of gas, particularly when released from cylinders, depended completely on the wind, both in strength and direction. Too strong and the gas will be dispersed, too weak, and it won't move towards the enemy. Unfortunately, their plans had not gone unnoticed by the Germans, who correctly deduced where the men would be attacking from. A captured prisoner also revealed that the Germans were ready for them. This was too much for Lieutenant Colonel Kemble of the 54th. He went to his superior, Brigadier Odlum, to get the raid called off. He agreed with him, but he failed to convince his superior, General Edmund Ironside. And so, in bright moonlight, on the night of March the 1st, the attack took place. 1,500 men waited in their trenches for the gas to do its work. The men assigned to open the gas cylinders did so at the allotted time. The wind was just right, as Doc Martin, who was in charge of one of the cylinders, opened the valve. At first, all went well as the gas drifted uphill towards the German lines. Alec Jack was a spectator to all that unfolded. By this stage of the war, before going into an action in which heavy casualties were expected, some officers and experienced NCOs would be left out. The idea being to retain some experience to rebuild the battalion around. Such was the confidence of the officers taking part that this raid would end in anything but failure. The men prepared to leave their trenches and advance through the gas cloud. Lieutenant Colonel Kemble strode onto the parapet of the trench, fully exposing himself to the enemy fire, and gave what would be his last ever command to the battalion he had led for nearly two years. He turned to his men and shouted out, I order you, do not follow me, and then strode towards the enemy lines. It was to no avail as his men poured out of their trenches just as every enemy gun opened up on them.
the Germans had come out of their dugouts with gas masks on and proceeded to pour a hailstorm of lead on the Canadians. Artillery from behind their lines opened up on the gas cylinders and on the men as they left the trenches. A storm of lead hit the Canadians as they were struggling uphill encumbered with their own gas masks. Lieutenant Colonel Kemble was hit and he fell into the barbed wire. At this point the second wave of gas was released but by now the wind had changed and the gas started to drift back into their own lines. The attacking troops had by now lost all cohesion and small groups of men now fought to stay alive. A few men made it into the German trenches where vicious hand-to-hand fighting took place. Major Lucas got as far as the German front line before he was killed. Within 15 minutes the attack was over. It had failed completely. Now the survivors tried desperately to get back to the comparative safety of their own trenches. All night long in the bright moonlight the Germans picked off the men huddled in the gas-filled shell holes. It was as one survivor recalled, a frightful slaughter. It was not until daylight that their nightmare ended. As dawn broke, the scene of utter carnage in such a small space appalled even the enemy. A German officer appeared and offered a 24-hour truce to collect the dead and wounded. Unheard of at this stage of the war, when casualties could be out for days, weeks and even months. The bodies of Lieutenant Colonel Kemble and Major Lucas were handed over with the due military respect by German soldiers. Nearly 700 Canadians were killed or wounded that night. The March 1st trench raid was and is one of the worst Canadian military disasters ever, eclipsed only by Dieppe 25 years later. But today it is barely known or remembered. The 54th suffered nearly as many casualties in a few minutes as they had in seven weeks on the Somme. For Headley, it was to be the worst night of the war. After dealing with the gas cylinders... Doc Martin had fought his way through the gas and the shell fire and the machine gun bullets and reached the German front line. There he was badly wounded and during the 24-hour truce, the Germans took him to one of their field hospitals. He died of his wounds there two days later. The Canadian field ambulances were also busy all day collecting the dead and wounded. One of them was the former Headley Gazette editor, ABS Stanley. He came across Bobby Robertson, who had been hit by a burst from a machine gun. While still alive, he had suffered severe arm and leg wounds. He wrote to Margaret Robertson to reassure her that while Bobby was badly wounded, he should survive, but his army days were behind him. At first it seemed like he would pull through. He was a fighter, but his wounds were grievous, and his condition gradually deteriorated. Throughout March and April, Margaret Robertson was receiving the dreaded telegrams, informing her as he went from seriously to dangerously ill. Until, on 28th of April, Bobby Robertson died of his wounds received on the March 1st trench raid. By the time of his death, the big attack on Vimy Ridge had gone ahead, and while ultimately successful, it had not all gone to plan. The 4th Division, which included the battalions that had been annihilated on March 1st, had been given the toughest task of all. They were to attack the north of the ridge, the same ground which they had suffered over six weeks before. This was also the toughest part of the whole Vimy Ridge defence. Two small rises in the ridge, known as the Pimple and the Hill 145, had been turned into mini-fortresses. And morale in the 54th had never been lower. The men knew the enormity of their task, but they no longer had the comforting presence of Lieutenant Colonel Kemble or Major Lucas. Instead, it was to be left to the new leaders to get the men up the ridge. The attack went well for the other three divisions, 
John Corrigan and his 29th Battalion were one of the first up the ridge, and soon troops of the 2nd Division had broken through. The men of the Canadian Corps advanced under a covering of heavy machine guns, which would move with them in support. Commanding one of these sections was Billy Tucker, now a Sergeant Major with the Military Medal. They kept up such a hail of fire that the Germans took off down the other side of the ridge. But at the northern end, it was the Canadian 3rd Division, including Dan Dolomol and Marcus Jacobs of the 2nd CMR, that was getting hit with machine gun fire. The Pimple and Hill 145 were perfectly positioned to fire into their flanks, because the attack to take these two hilltop positions had stalled. The 54th battle plan was... Well, let's hear it from someone who was there. Here is Alec Jack. The general plan for the 54th Battalion was that uh, we would follow the 102nd Battalion in our sector. They were to go roughly halfway across the ridge. We were to follow them up and go through them and advance to the eastern side of the ridge, facing out over the plain of Douai towards Lens. The attack went off about dawn. It was snowing at the time. The ridge was an appalling mess, shell hole to shell hole, practically the whole way across, interspersed with mine craters, barbed wire. All the shell holes were full of water, and uh, it would have been very difficult just uh, taking a walk across their normal attire without the loads that we carried and under the conditions we went. And yes, that was Alec Jack recorded in the 1960s. His reminiscences appeared on a 50th anniversary double record set on Vimy Ridge. And with so many thanks to his grandson, Sandy Whiteman, we are lucky to have an audio first-hand account from a Headley boy. What Alec Jack doesn't mention is that he was likely the most junior officer in the whole Canadian Corps, having only received his commission a week before. At this time, he hadn't been assigned to the platoon. Instead, he was at headquarters, where he now takes up his account of his actions at Vimy Ridge. Some hours after the action started, reports were coming in as they normally would, but they were all at odds. Reports from our right flank were to the effect that we had got partway across the ridge, they had gone through the 102nd Battalion and were held up by machine gun and sniper fire a considerable distance across the ridge. Reports from our left flank, on the other hand, were stating that they were pinned down a very few yards out from their starting point by German machine guns, which apparently had been missed by our barrage. But that was not realized or not known by the commanding officer, and uh, he was very confused with these conflicting reports. He detailed me to go up to the front, see what the situation was, carry out any reorganization of the battalion, which seemed to be necessary, and get them somehow over to their objective, which was some five or six hundred yards further on, as it turned out, of where they were. I had no escort except one Lewis gunner and half a dozen middle-aged batmen to carry ammunition. We were guided by two young Kamloops boys, George Ellis and uh, Eric uh, Grisdale, fine young lads. Both got the military medal that day. And um, they eventually landed us in a trench held by the 42nd Battalion, the Black Watch, Canadian Black Watch. We were being sniped rather badly, and uh, the Lewis gunner was hit just as we jumped into this trench. I left him with his attendants to look after him and moved along the trench, and I finally came to the left flank, where I found that the 54th and 102nd, or the remnants of them, were all together. There were about 90 men of the 54th, 
and there were a few more of the 102nd. 102nd officers were all casualties, and so were the 54th officers. So as a young fellow of 25, I found myself in the end of the remains of two battalions <laughs> with our left flank up in the air and the Germans all round us at the back. I sent in a report on the situation, and then I sorted out the men, getting the 54th to the exposed flank and the 102nd on our right. Then I decided that I would uh, go forward myself and see what I could find out about the situation in front. I knew that there must be scores of our men pinned down in shell holes by the snipers. And the same with the 102nd, probably far more than we had in our body in the trench. I got a volunteer to come with me, and we crawled and crept down five or six hundred yards to the far side of the ridge on the east side. And there's the plain of Dewey below us with hardly a mark on it. It looked just like a succession of farmers' fields. It looked so extraordinary to our eyes after the scenes on the ridge. I observed quite a number of German posts all manned, and I went along in the opposite direction near the Foley Wood, and found the same thing, so I realized that the line there was fully manned by German troops. I retreated very quickly without any hesitation. We came back the same way we went, but uh, part of the way up there, a sniper sighted us, and he gave us close attention all the way up. And I got uh, back into our line by another route, crawling most of the way. The remains of the 102nd and 54th Battalions held their ground under Alec Jack's leadership. The next day, Hill 145 was taken by the 87th Battalion, passing through the positions Alex Jack had defended, and the following day the Pimple. All of Viermy Ridge was now in Canadian hands, but at a high cost of over 10,000 Canadian casualties. After the war, France gifted a part of the ridge to Canada for their national memorial. The ground the memorial stands on is Hill 145, and the first Canadian to stand on that spot and look down on the plain of Dewey was Alec Jack on his solo scouting mission. Fifty years later, Alec Jack was back at Vimy Ridge, but this time his journey there was a bit more comfortable. He was flown in a Canadian Air Force Yukon transport plane, along with other veterans as representatives of the Canadian government in recognition of their actions that day 50 years before. Headley Boys was written, produced and presented by Andy English. Maple Leaf Forever was performed by Cindy Rieger in the Grace Church, Headley. <laughs>